going on, people? Welcome to a bonus episode of But I Digress. As I promised last week, we have a first-person on-the-ground correspondent who was at the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup. So I'm actually on location at the dwelling of one of my best friends in the world, Fran. Say hi to everybody, Fran. Hello, everybody. Uh, Fran, what we're going to do today is it's just going to be an interview. Um, as I said, Fran and I are pretty much best friends, so it may get a little tangential. Um, so you'll just have to bear with us. But we'll try to stay as close to the topic of soccer and soccer-related things as we possibly can. Um, so, Fran, what I want you to do for the people is let's start at the beginning and kind of your relationship with soccer and how that started. Sure. Like uh, a lot of young American girls, especially young American girls, the parents, uh, parents who were not particular, particularly athletically inclined, my parents just wanted my sister and I to participate, something active, something healthy, something team-oriented, and everyone was doing soccer, so they're like, here, go run, kick, have fun, play soccer, and that's, that's how it started, a pretty typical story, and even though I played my whole childhood and, and didn't even have, I wouldn't say overwhelmingly positive experiences, I think also as a lot of young girls' experience, you know, I was bullied on some of the t- young teams I was on, did not have a lot of friends, but uh, eventually that got better, and uh, you know, you always find your place somewhere, and, and I think especially women's soccer can be very good at that. And I played my whole childhood, all through high school, all through college, and never, I, I knew, I'll never forget hearing about Mia Ham for the first time. It was when I was on my first travel team, which was a big deal. I was eight years old, and I made the club team. And we were, it was Jersey Day. We all got to pick our numbers. And I remember all the other girls were like super invested in what number they were going to get. And I didn't, I didn't care about it at all. I didn't understand what the big deal was. And I ended up with number nine and I didn't know how to feel about it. And someone said, oh, Francesca, that's, that's like Mia Hamm. That's Mia Hamm's number. And I, I knew it was important, but I still didn't know what she was. That, I guess if I was eight years old, that must have been, that must have been 2000. That must have been right, that was right after the 99 or so. It was right as Mia Hamm was blowing up. And, and that was the first time I can ever remember the, the U.S. women's national team or professional women's soccer at all being on my radar. And from then on, you know, then as I got older, you'd always hear about the national team at the World Cup cycles, and I would tune in for a few games. And, and that was that until 2014. Am I getting ahead of myself? Uh, probably a little bit, so we're going to go back a bit. Sure. Um, so you mentioned the 99ers, yeah. and for those of you who haven't really been paying attention, 99 was probably the most historic Women's World Cup team for the U.S. Uh, we did win the inaugural one in 1991, but the 99 U.S. or 99 FIFA World Cup was in America. So having a team that was that good and then us winning and it being here made it so that I would probably say that's the first time that mainstream America paid attention to women's soccer. Would well, you agree with that? The 1991 World Cup was not called the World Cup. It was the international competition for the M&M's Cup or some, some <laughs> Something crazy, right? Because people wasn't willing to put the World Cup title on that preliminary women's tournament. Right. So 1999, and with us being the age that we are, um, I was born in 91. You were born in 92, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So we were probably a little bit young. Um, I had actually just moved back to the States for 99. So I don't remember watching any of that World Cup, but I know the names Mia Hamm and Brittany Chastain, and I have no idea why. It's just one of those things that's kind of ingrained, I guess, when you're that age. Um, so it is really interesting that you... The UNT agenda infiltrating the minds of Americans. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's interesting that you got Mia Hamm's number, and that was kind of your introduction to it. Um, and then you said you played in high school, and then you played in college. 
And from what we've talked about, I know that in college you didn't play varsity, which everybody Correct. is familiar with, but you played well, club you just instead. Me out. I try to sneak that in, like I played in college. Well, yeah, but I want true. you to. We're going to talk about that though. So I want you because I played club a club sport in college as well, and so I know what that experience is like. But a lot of people have not done that. So can you talk about what that was like, and maybe um, if you know of how it was different from the varsity game, Absolutely. and whether you enjoyed it or not? Absolutely. And sure. Yeah. So I went to Tulane University for my undergraduate degree. Roll wave love Tulane, did not love what they were doing with soccer on campus. They were telling a lot of people, they, they ended up cutting their varsity soccer programs after Katrina and kept telling people, you know, obviously Tulane's a very uh, good academic school and attracts students for that reason. And so they would get all these students that were like, yeah, I'm really good at soccer. I want to play if I can, but it's not a huge priority for me. Uh, I'm, you know, more uh, academics are my main focus, but I'd love to play. And they say, hey, you know, we're going to bring the team back in a couple years all informal, right? You know, they should never agree to anything that's not right, in paper. Right, of course. We're going to have a varsity team in a couple of years. Why don't you come play club in the meantime? By your junior year, you can walk on to the varsity team. So I went to Tulane, was all prepared to just play club. And when I got there, the existing club girls that were juniors and seniors were like, yeah, they've been telling us all that for years. It's, there's, no, there's no end in sight of uh, bringing back a varsity team. So I joined the club team, which was not in the best shape. We would play... Uh, so for, for those of you who don't know, club sports in college are entirely student-run. However a club performs, it's all based on the commitment of the students involved, the executive board that puts all the work in, collects dues, organizes everything, joins you in the leagues. All of that work that is behind the scenes that people don't think about to make sports happen is all done by students. So you have to do it in your spare time. You have to have people committed. And then you have to have a team committed to show up and, and make something of it. So when I joined the team... We would play a couple friendly matches, especially because we were in Louisiana. There weren't a ton of other schools to compete against super nearby. So we'd play a couple matches a semester, have a couple practices a week. Mostly we were a drinking team with a soccer problem, and that was about that. The evolution of that team, though, that's something I discovered about myself in my time playing club. Uh, by my sophomore year, we had our executive board all kind of fall off because, again, if you don't have committed students and it falls apart and they all stopped caring and uh, just kind of neglected it to do to do other things. <laughs> Sororities. And <laughs> so I, I stepped up. I was wondering, me and a couple other girls stepped up and were like, okay, well, someone's got to make this happen and kind of learned on the job sophomore year and then junior and senior year committed myself to, to being the president of that team, which, you know, is not the same as an on-field captain, uh, which, which I ended up being as well, but more importantly, it's doing all the administrative stuff. I got us into a competitive league, so we were regularly traveling, playing you know six or seven games a semester instead of just one or two. Part of you know we almost qualified for regionals, uh, which no one was going to go to anyway because it was over Halloween weekend in Tulane, New Orleans, Halloween. Absolutely. You know, even even the soccer fanatics have our limits. You're not going to miss that. I mean, it is college at it the end of college. the day, right? It is college. <laughs> So this is why we're not pros, because we <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> this is what separates the club athletes from the varsity athletes. Uh, but that was an important experience for me because I learned there would be incidences where I would have to be, I would be literally painting the field, getting waivers signed, getting equipment and water and everything else, and I would miss out on playing half a game because I was putting everything together and just making the game happen. And something I learned about myself is that my passion for the sport, it, I was still just as satisfied uh, being part of facilitating making those games happen, uh, even if I wasn't playing as much, um, still gave me great joy, uh, which is something I've now carried into my professional career, which is awesome. I'm glad you said passion, because what I immediately thought about in listening to that story, which, by the way, guys, I've never actually heard that story. Really? Um, no, we've never talked about that so. in depth. Um, was that seems like it was a time where your interest in soccer went from like a hobby and an interest to actually being a passion. 
which yeah. kind of leads us to where we are today, which right. we'll get to, I'm sure, much later. But can you talk about that transition and maybe why you think that happened and what that was sure, like? Sure, sure. And I, that was the beginning of it. I think it took me, just with introspection, a little while longer to really realize what that meant. Uh, at the same time, I was working intramurals with my part-time job. Like, one way or another, sports, and, and especially soccer as a sport, was always in my life even more than just the thing I did to let loose and work out because actually running when you're not chasing something is dumb. Fair. That's a whole other um, podcast I, episode. I mean, it's not really a topic. I, we are people who don't run. No offense to runners. For, I'm really right. impressed with you all, but like you It's guys. great, but I don't, I don't uh, see the point. Uh, I run when people are chasing me. I run with the purpose of like scoring, chasing someone, right? Like <laughs> chasing a ball. Otherwise, I'm... Not, but running to run. People are like, well, the goal of running is to be in shape. And I'm like... Mm. And, and you know what? Runners are absolutely correct when they say it's all about the mental fortitude. And I just do not have that mental fortitude. I have different I mental have, fortitude, I, I think. I, I don't have that mental fortitude. It's Correct. Like, I didn't accept that. Myself. <laughs> Absolutely. It's all right. Uh, but I did always have soccer in my life, one way or another, both playing, and then anytime I could work it into my the rest of my life, I, I refereed, you know, coached, all that other stuff. And after you graduate college, like many people do, once again, found myself not exactly knowing what I wanted to do. Ended up going to grad school. Didn't know what I wanted to do. Grad school was still kind of a stopgap of. I like school, so I'll stay in it, but not for too long. And I don't, you know, maybe another advanced degree or maybe get a job. Ended up in a random job working in hotels. Uh, so that, that element of passion in my life was in serious decline, actually, for a couple of years after, especially after I graduated my master's degree, where I was just working working to live and trying to figure out um, what I really wanted to do. And, and when I quit that hotel job and had to look back and reflect and, and thought, what is... And by that time, I had also become a huge super fan-ish, right. <laughs> avid fan. That's the that's the term we use, an avid fan. Correct. Uh, of the women's national team at NWSL, uh, reflected back on what I've spent my time doing, what has given me the greatest joy, what has made me feel most fulfilled, and which which for me comes as a lot of things because I, I, I my politics impact everything I do and the way I think about what I do, and so that was always really important to me as well. And just looking back, I was like, you know, there's never been a time in your life, Francesca, where soccer hasn't, you haven't made time for soccer in one way or another, whatever that work entails, that's been a common thread that helps give you joint purpose. And so I looked and thought, okay, here's, here's what I enjoy doing. Here's my skill set. Here's my passion. Let's go. <laughs> and got a job with U.S. Soccer months later. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So before we talk about you working with U.S. Soccer... Um, based on the timeline that I understand, we're going to rewind to 2015, um, where we had the Women's World Cup in Canada, and we're going to do this briefly, because obviously this is not the topic of today, Um, but as it was the first time you attended the World Cup, I feel like we should at least touch on it, so um, brief for us, like, let's be real. Um, So (laughs) let's talk a little bit about, first, why you decided to go to the Women's World Cup in Canada and kind of how that went and then a little bit of your experience and then the really cool perfectly paced past story that you love to tell. Oh, those we can end with that. Super perfectly paced past. Okay. Yeah. So credit to an ex-girlfriend of mine uh, who <laughs> supremely judged me. We bonded over, again, you know, most of the great things in my life come from soccer. She and I met uh, working a summer camp and people put us together as because uh, we were both soccer people. But she very quickly found out that I wasn't nearly as much of a soccer person as I should be because I was not familiar with the National Women's Soccer League. I only tuned in to watch the Women's National Team in World Cup years, and she was like, girl, 
get it together. You are sleeping on some amazing women in amazing soccer and uh, taught me, <laughs> you know, got, got me started on the path I am now of, of it, almost encyclopedic knowledge of a lot of uh, American women's professional soccer. And so in that relationship, she was the one that, you know, not only taught me a lot about the team, got me really invested in it, she was the one that said, the World Cup's happening in Canada. We are right next to Canada. I don't know how we're going to get there, but I just bought $1,000 worth of tickets, and we're going. <laughs> and she did Fair that. enough. That was in, not only was it early in our relationship, that was, so we started dating in, like, June of 2014. In September of 2014, she bought the tickets. The World Cup wasn't until June of 2015. So the hedging her bets, for sure. Hey, we believed, man. That was the theme <laughs> of 2015. We freaking believed, like, the most. And it, and it did, and it was fabulous, and it totally worked out, and she bought the tickets, and I'm that, again, that operations-minded person where I'm like, okay, let's let's work backwards. We've got a month worth of soccer games in Vancouver. We road-tripped across the country, crashed on families' couches, uh, reserved a campsite in Squamish, just north of Vancouver, for the whole month to be, once again, ec- economical. This was on a, she was an undergraduate student, and I was a graduate student, the two highest-paid jobs in the country, as we all know. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, we crushed it, and we went to 10 games. We went to nine games in Vancouver, including the final, and we, we chose Vancouver. The way the, the ticket structure works, and I, I think this is important to understand for, you know, any sports experience. Really. For sure. It's, it's, especially the World Cup is such a huge endeavor. It's really interesting how this works out. The way they sold tickets for Canada, since it's such a large country, they had games in cities across the country. They sold stadium passes where you could buy all the tickets to all the games in one city, and they would also give you tickets to the final. And so we just went, we're like, Vancouver, it's going to be the finals in Vancouver. We're going to buy all the tickets to Vancouver. We had no idea which teams were going to play there. They hadn't drawn the group stage matches yet. We just knew the final's going to be there. U.S. is going to be in the final. We, we believe. We know that. And we're going we're gonna to buy that and go. And that's what we did. And we lived in a tent for a month, drove across the country from New Orleans to Vancouver, lived in a tent for a month. Bought bonus tickets to the game in Edmonton, the round of 16 match against Columbia. Oh, awesome. Okay. Yep. Flew to, and that one, that was sandwiched between two games in Vancouver. So we flew to Edmonton, hung out in Edmonton until the game started. There's nothing going on in Edmonton, so we were right. here it's, with like... It's literally the World Cup in hockey. Oh, God, it was awful. So we, <laughs> we did that, watched the game. Uh, we had an early morning flight, so we weren't going to get a hotel, so we slept in the airport. It was horribly uncomfortable. But we did it. <laughs> Took the airplane back that next early next morning. Went to a game in the city in Vancouver the next day. It was epic. So yeah, ten games overall, and then we were there in the stands for the uh, for the World Cup win. Carly Lloyd's hat trick. We had perfect seats to watch Carly Lloyd's half field goal. Um, it was and that was pretty surreal. If anyone knows or remembers, that was a hat trick in the first sixteen minutes. At halftime, we were up I think four to two. Yeah, didn't we end up winning 5-2? Five five to two. Two. Yeah, I, I thought so. Was five to two. But it was the first the first 20 minutes of that game. I mean, even the first four minutes, there were two goals. It was just electrifying. It was, it was just shock and disbelief and giddy awe. It was incredible. Awesome. And then the last thing from 2015, before we leave that in the past, um, you have to tell the story oh, yes. about so the another, past. Yes, yes <laughs> the past. Not to be confused with the pass in 2011, 2011, Megan Rapinoe to oh, Abby Wambach. Yes, not that pass, which is <laughs> also pass. like the Slight, pass. Only slightly more epic. Right. The pass versus <laughs> the pass, maybe. No, so another excellent part about the Women's World Cup and women's soccer in general, I, I do kind of enjoy having it being a small fan base because the fans are very connected, and that also means the pros are very connected to the fans because Correct. it's pretty small. And so we ended up befriending on that trip uh, the girls from Soccer Girl Problems, uh, Carly, Alana, and... 
Shannon, Carly Lawn and Shannon. They there were you wonderful. go. Um, and they invited us to come play. They were hosting pickup games. We watched. We went. To, we watched in a bar the USA China game with them. I think. And when they so the, the morning of the final, they had another pickup match, and so we decided to go. And they said oh, we might have some special guests. Um, didn't know who that was going to be, and so we start playing these just small-sided games out on the field. We're just perfect to get out the pre-World Cup jitters, you know, of course. before the match. It's like, there's nothing else I want to be doing right now. And uh, we're waiting for this whoever the special guest is supposed to be coming up, and uh, I'm just playing my game. The ball goes out of bounds, and I, I turn up to go get it, and the ball rolls out of bounds to the feet of the one and only Mia Hamm. Whose number you wore. Whose number that's I wore. A, that's a very small child. Number nine, forever and always. And uh, I'm just I'm just chasing after the ball going out of bounds, and I look up and freaking <laughs> Mia Hamm has it at her feet, right? And passes it to me, a perfectly weighted pass right to me. I'm just like, thanks. <laughs> like turn and go back to the field and play, uh, which was an awesome way to like find out that Mia Hamm was our surprise guest, and you know later got to talk to her and you know take some pics, and it was pretty fun. She didn't jump in the game, so I feel very honored to have gotten to just receive a pass from one of the all-time greats. It was, I think I told her, too, when I met her. I did tell her. I said, you know, I'm sure she's heard it a million times, but I was like, I want your number. Yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> Mia Hamm, for those of you who somehow don't know, um, is basically the Michael Jordan of women's soccer, with Abby Wambach probably being the LeBron James, like the second That's coming, That's um, I would say. Although I think Mia and her, well, Mia would probably say they were better teammates on her team than her, but she got all the, uh, all the media accolades. attention. Yeah. Media-wise, she was certainly Michael Jordan. Um, and so it's, it's nice to have stars like that who are accessible. As somebody who, and this is a bit of an aside, but I promise it's related, um, went to high school with Michael Jordan's son, who actually was on the basketball team, and Michael Jordan actually came to the games, he was not accessible. People didn't want to talk to him. People were even afraid to sit within, like, six feet of him. So to have someone on that level, especially at the most important tournament that only happens four years, come and hang out with a bunch of young girls who scrounge together money to get tickets to go to Canada. It's it, it's what makes women's soccer look, different. If you know the story of the 99ers, that's what they do. Like, that's what they were doing when they when they were playing. That's how they got people to go to the 99 games. They literally went out to girls' practices and said, hey, come see us, hey, come see us, because no one knew about the national team. The federation wasn't doing anything to market them. And that's, that's how they grew the fan base at a very grassroots, gritty-oriented kind of way. Um, I, 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 I got to recommend uh, the book The National Team by Caitlin Murray tells follows this whole history uh, ending right before this World Cup um, and it's just, oh god it's an incredible book with all these with, with incredible stories for anyone who's interested that's awesome so obviously you had a wonderful time and committed to doing your best to not miss another World Cup absolutely yeah um, and so it's actually interesting that four years is both a short time and a long time mm-hmm. in that it's obviously only four years which for us is like a sixth of our lives but at the same time the drastic difference in life stage between 2015 and 2019 (laughs) (laughs) right so let's talk about you now obviously you made the decision to go to france back in 2012 when they decided that it was in france or 2016 i'm sorry um but what that experience was like, and if there were any major differences between being in Canada, similarities, what attributed to those, and so yeah, on. Yeah, for sure. The big obvious one is the size of the country. As I mentioned earlier, they will always, whatever the host country is, they will host games in all different cities in the country. 
So going into France, I knew, whereas in Canada, we kind of needed to pick a spot and camp because we couldn't afford to literally metaphorically camp out. Correct. Because <laughs> we could not afford to travel all over a country that big to follow a particular team. And in general, by then, I'd, I'd been following women's soccer a lot more closely, and I was also less invested in the U.S. women's national team specifically. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll get to this as well. The U.S. women's national team is basically my only outlet of American patriotism. Yes, absolutely. And that is uh, significant to me. Uh, I, I mostly just wanted to see great games, see see the sport, and I knew I'd want to go to the later rounds, see some of the better uh, better matches. Uh, well, I already want to take that back because I think the group stages are very important. But they were. <laughs> and they great were. matches. Great matches. I take it all back. But I knew it would be possible if I wanted to to – follow the teams, go to different cities, do it a little differently, or just pick different cities. I wanted to go to a little more of a backpacking trip than a camping trip, just on, on the logistics side. And But it, that would all depend on where my life was at, how much time I could take off. You know, last World Cup I was a student, so I had the whole summer, so I could do the whole month. Right. Now I'm a full-time employee, so it was, it was a matter of choosing the beginning of the year. Here's all my PTO days. Here's when I'm going to use them. Right. And there is not if, it's when. Like, this yeah, is happening. Right, <laughs> right. right. Uh, but I had the money um, earmarked years ago. The second I got, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll even share this to help anyone who thinks this is impossible. It, for a very uh, stress-free trip, doing everything I wanted to do, three grand both times for Canada and France. Canada was a whole month. Uh, split with someone else made it easier. France was a little more on my own and involved international flights, and that was three grand for a two-week trip to go see six professional World Cup soccer matches and do all the touristy stuff I wanted. Almost all the drinking I wanted. Almost. <laughs> that's, that's all the expense, really. I'm not that dent. Had escargot, you know, some nice food. Did all the France stuff. Um, and in four years, saving up three grand, totally possible, totally manageable. Oh, absolutely. Already ready for um, the next round. I think there's a lot to be said. You know, people... <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> people are very invested in their home teams and they always go see the sports teams that are local to them but I think there's something to be said for traveling with your team sure for sure and going to and using sports as a travel opportunity as you see uh, even more sports markets are picking up on with American leagues hosting games in, in Europe and vice versa yeah absolutely um, and a bit on the traveling before we get into your specifics in France uh, we saw a lot of that with the US team where many countries weren't really playing warm-up matches right before the World Cup and the US did a bit of a farewell farewell tour, you can call it, mm-hmm. um, where they played a bunch of international friendlies just across the country. And we went to the one in Nashville, which is... Well, that was part a, of the She Believes Cup. Oh, that's right. It was the She Believes mm-hmm. Cup. Mm-hmm. And then they had the then farewell. Had so they played a bunch of international games. <laughs> um, but the point of that I was making was we drove eight hours, which I had never been to Nashville, so it was like, cool, go to a new city. And I had never been to a national team game, so like obviously I'm going to do it, especially before the World Cup. But it was cool to see all of the people that we met that were not from Nashville. Yeah. And that was, which was pretty much everybody. Yeah. And then a friend that you made yeah. from going to another <laughs> in international Alabama, game yeah. right in Alabama was also there. So it was just, it shows that while this is a national team and is arguably in the top three of the national teams that we have in any sport, um, that the community is still really small. So going back to France, let's start with, Day one, you left, I think it was Tuesday morning uh, in America. Tuesday afternoon in America. Landed and then, Wednesday morning. Right, and so then you get to France, and let's go from there. 
and we figure out the trains. I, ha- I was traveling with a friend who is, she's a travel writer, and so she has just bought a one-way ticket to Europe and is doing her thing. She's fluent in French, which also made, you know, I, I got, it was very easy for me. I got her to do all the hard stuff. Oh, absolutely. Most part. So she was already in Paris, so she, she, went, she met me at the airport and brought me back to figure out the train by myself. She met me at the airport oh, and perfect. brought me back. And we dropped our bags off and went to go get a cheese and meat board. Right at the so you just started culture right yeah, away. Immediately. And it, it was like very Parisian. We sat and, uh, you know, we had to catch up, get all of our chit chat out of the of course, way. Had, of our, course. had our meats and cheeses, which were exceptional. Um, for like three hours, we sat at this cafe and chatted and chatted of away course. and got, got our World Cup prep ready to go. Uh, and then explored and walked down the Champs Elysees, then went into downtown Paris a little bit and. Walked around, just got a lay of the land, sat under the Eiffel Tower that night where we met up with some other traveling fans, some of my Red Star supporters fans, uh, in particular my, my soccer mom, Janet. Janet's got to get a special shout out uh, yeah. multiple times. Love Janet. Gotta and we will up. talk about the NWSL uh, after we're done with the World Cup very briefly. Sure, no, we'll talk about it right now because the NWSL traveling fans, there was a whole Chicago Red Star oh, yeah, contingency sure. in France that we all had a great... Uh, you know, a little Facebook group going because there were there were a, a dozen or more of us uh, of people who we you know we go to games regularly together right. here in Chicago. Games that are only attended by a couple thousand people, and there's a group of us that go to go to all those, and a bunch of us travel to France as well. And so we met up with my soccer mom Janet. Um, she's my soccer mom because she her her daughter. I played soccer with her daughter. My sister played soccer with her daughter back when we were in high school, and now she's a huge she's. Oh man, she's has unrivaled women's soccer knowledge. Love talking to her. She knows it all, and is my favorite Red Stars buddy. And we got to meet under the Eiffel Tower with a couple other Red Stars fans, her daughters, and the, my new Parisian friends with my friend Jackie, who I was traveling with, and saw the lights, drank the wine, talked the soccer. Just a, a, a beautiful first welcoming night there to, to to kick off the trip. Awesome. So, if my memory is correct, the first game that you saw. And getting over there was the quarterfinal or the round of 16 match between the U.S. and France, right? Or did you see one before? It was a quarterfinal. Actually, so we got to, I'll say part of the experience too, even before the back quarterfinal, we got to see the quarterfinal between England and Norway, not in person, but we watched it at the Paris FIFA fan zone. Okay, so talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so in every, all these host cities, uh, and they did this in, in Canada as well, of course, I only saw Vancouver's, they set up a FIFA fan zone usually either in the city center or near the stadium. In Vancouver, it was near the stadium because the stadium's downtown in Paris and the other cities where the stadiums are a little farther out of the city center. They set up the fan zone in downtown areas, attract a little more foot traffic. They set up huge, big screens to have viewing parties so everyone can collect somewhere and watch the games. They've got free giveaways from the sponsors, uh, all that good stuff, depending on where you're at. They had some really, you know, games for kids, uh, soccer billiards, soccer tennis, it's, you know, Target, the big Target Velcro shot thing. Like we need mini, that. Mini courts. Oh, we need all of it. <laughs> all of it. I know we Every only day. have soccer tennis, but we should probably build. <laughs> I want the build. soccer billiards. Yeah, like, really I see cool. pictures I want to play. Really cool. I want to play. Yeah, it's all that. So then that's just the fan zone, right? We're not even talking about the games yet. This is just right, like the this fan is just zone just things to do, of course. So we knew we'd be in Paris uh, while the, I don't remember where that match was, the England-Norway game. But so we got to go to the fan zone to... Watch the game, which was awesome. Just seeing people, more Red Stars fans, more people. We have, of course. I, I was sitting here like a group of 20, ran into the ex from 2015. That's how I, my second day in Paris, ran into the ex. <laughs> and we have not spoken in like two years, a year or something. And we're just like, oh, hey, Paris soccer, what's up? Well, we knew she was going to be there. She made <laughs> the same commitment there, that you fine. did. It was fine. We small just, country. It, it's <laughs> Things happen. That's how small the women's soccer community is. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> 
but it was, it was, it was, that was a cute little, <laughs> I don't know how cute it was, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> we ignored each other and it was great and it was a, be- a beautiful little moment of this is, this is the women's soccer community. <laughs> Bringing people together regardless <laughs> of their relationship. Bringing people together if you want it or not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, really, again, really fun to have a, have a big group there uh, to watch, watch that game. And then, yeah, first game in person. So that was, that was a great welcome to France, too. I got to see the home team play, which is, which is incredible. That was super significant about that match, USA versus France. I, I, I've seen a lot of women's national team games. This is not my first World Cup. I've been to the Tournament of Nations and the She Believes Cup and friendly matches and the Victory Tour, all the things all over the place. And this was the first match where it felt like the USA wasn't a away team because that is so hard to do with this team. Absolutely, so especially over here. every match I'd seen was either in the U.S., so obviously U.S. dominant crowd there, or it was in Canada, which was still a U.S. dominant crowd because they all they never played against Canada, which would have been the only team that could have mustered a fan base to compete. Right, of and course. So and then it was easy for the Americans to come up. So it was I didn't real and I'd never thought about that. I didn't realize how jarring it was. Even though USA came away victorious from that game, I left with the the French chants in my head because the, their fans killed it. Their fans killed it. It was so cool and so good and um, refreshing to be at a USA game where it wasn't just like all USA all the time. And that isn't just from a fan standpoint, but also from a play standpoint on the field, because up until that point, the U.S. had pretty much coasted through the rest of the tournament. I yeah, mean, I, I don't think the Spain game was pretty challenging. The Spain game was pretty challenging, but mostly they didn't play well. Twenty fifteen run, it was a lot less right. <laughs> stressful, stressful journey. And even with the Spain game, it kind of felt like Spain was in it because we weren't playing well, not because they were. True. Doesn't as, make it any less stressful for a fan. Of course, of course. I mean, as a fan, <laughs> if your team is supposed to be winning and right. they're not or they're barely winning, it's stressful. But it's a different feeling when you're like, oh, we're not playing well. If we turn it on, we'll be fine. Whereas, like, you're playing France, and I remember watching that game, and I'm going, I don't know if we're going to win this, and this team is about as good as we are. Yeah. Which is a different feeling. They were the biggest threat. And we knew that coming in there because they just they had beaten us merely months earlier, 3-0. to zero. They smoked us. Right. And then they had home field advantage. I, for one, had predicted that France would win. I was not willing to. A lot of people did. Yeah. And it was one I of those things where. Wallace, maybe my least favorite thing in the world to do, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> of I course. Wasn't as quite as, I wasn't quite as committed to that prediction as he was, but. But, I mean, it's still one of those things of where you almost, like with March Madness, you want to make two brackets, one where your team wins and then one that you actually <laughs> think will happen, right? Your heart, your heart bracket and your head bracket. Absolutely. <laughs> and so it was interesting as an, a fan of American sports and you watch the Olympics and you know, like, we're probably going to win track and field. We're probably going to win swimming. We're going to win basketball. Like, the, the sports that we're used to winning, we win. And although in women's soccer we have dominated over the past 30 years, there's still been a lot of times where people were able to muster efforts. Oh, for sure. And as dominant as the U.S. team has been, I think it's important to note, like, the 91 World Cup, a lot smaller, less people cared. For sure. All, the, all that. 99ers, first big deal, huge huge crowds in the U.S. And then the, 50, the 15ers, no one really calls them that. The gals, that's what we called the 15ers. Correct. <laughs> Uh, that was a 16-year drought. That was we, we still think of ourselves as the dominant team in the world, but we have not. We won gold medals in the Olympics. We have not won a World Cup title in, in 16, 16 years. years. Yeah. So that was a huge – there was a ton of stress to, like, break that. It was like this team is absolutely good enough to do it, but it was incredibly stressful. And then this one was almost a victory lap, but that's why you got to see so much personality come out in the victory this, this time. Yeah, well, because on this team, it seemed as though at least half, if not more, uh, were on the 2015 team. 
And I should know that off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure it was less than half. Was like it the, less than the half? The 2015 team was gutted almost immediately. Was it really? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you had all the retirements. Abby Wambach, Fair. Shannon Box, Christy Fair. Pierce, um, uh, Lauren Holiday, which is kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, that's a... Yeah. Um, she, I mean, I think she was the, the, the number 10 that team needed and has had a hard time replacing. God bless Rose Lavelle for... Stepping, stepping up. up into that, yeah. Uh, but I think I think uh, Lauren Holiday was a huge loss on the soccer end there. But yeah, no, I mean by the by the Olympics the next year and, and even twenty seventeen the year after that, it was half those players were, were retired. Um, Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, I I wish I had those numbers in front of me because I'm. It's perfectly fine. So, <laughs> with that being said, so we had some people, but not that many. So we have a lot of newcomers. Mm-hmm. Um, so after France, U.S. Totally different was then France, England? Or, sorry, yes. U.S. and England? Yes. Okay, so let's talk about being there for that game. Can we not? It was super stressful. Um, but we have to <laughs> because of the Chicago connection. So we have to get into that, just a little bit um, at least. Oh, gosh. Okay. Give me a second to orient. I'm off. So that was the Megan Rapino is hurt at the last second. Mm. Kristen Press is starting mm. at forward. Mm. And I'm going to interject on this because Fran didn't get to see any of this because she was in France. That's always very interesting watching the games without any commentary. Without any commentary. And like for a long period of time. Right. Everything's geo-blocked on Fox. And you have no, so you don't get any any storylines. So as someone who's gotten into women's soccer in the last two years, so I had pretty decent knowledge coming up to this World Cup. um, It was incredibly frustrating watching all the pregame coverage when, like, two hours before the game, they said that Megan Rapinoe wasn't starting, but we didn't know why. Mm -hmm. And going into the game, we still didn't know why. Like, we didn't find out she was injured until the game was over. Mm -hmm. And so it was just announced that Kristen Press was starting, and so everybody was basically saying that the U.S. was going to lose because Megan Rapinoe wasn't playing. Which is so crazy. It's so crazy. And it was frustrating for those of us who, A, understand soccer, and B have been watching this team, which I know makes it sound bad because the people who are getting paid to talk about it should understand soccer, but it was like they haven't been watching this team because they're, if Kristen Press had started over Megan Rapinoe in any other game, like tactically, people would have said, yeah, that's probably a bad idea, but like she would have done fine. Uh, it was said, and was it Ali? I believe it was Ali Krieger oh, yes. after we started mm-hmm. basically all backups in our second game of the group stage that we have the best and the second best team. Yep. And so it was incredibly frustrating sitting there watching them talk about Kristen Press and how Megan Rapino was such a huge loss and blah, 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 blah. And it was like. To that credit, I did think they said multiple times, especially when they played almost the entire quote unquote second team mm-hmm. in, the, in the Chile game. And they yes. said, you know, any of these players would make. Yes. So they did say that, but that was the game announcers. Mm -hmm. But Alexi Lawlison crew was not as (laughs) was not as confident, shall we say? Um, And so it was one of those things of where there was one person I don't remember who it was who brought up the really good point of because this is when it could have been a tactical decision. We had no idea why. And so England has Lucy Brown. It wasn't just that they were so hush about it. Right. And so England having Lucy Bronze, who plays right back, who is one of the best right backs in the game, there were people, there was one person who said, if this is a tactical decision, I don't disagree with it because Kristen Press has more pace and is a better defensive forward than Megan Rapinoe, who would have to play against Lucy Bronze for the entire game. Very fair. And so there was one person who understood that, like, if this is tactical, it's not necessarily bad. Um, I think it was Hayo. I think it was Heather O'Reilly, which is great, of course. (laughs) Um, and then of course the game starts 
and I'll let you talk about what happened in, I want to say, the 12th minute. <laughs> uh, I might need a refresher. I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize okay. for letting you down. Oh, you're good. You're good. Oh. I haven't uh, had a day off since I got back. We also just cut. rewatched the first 70 minutes of that game last night when you weren't here. Oh, so so, so I'm, I'm fresh on it. I think it's, I think um, but it's responsibility for me not prepping you. Oh, oh you're good. So vindication for we Quiston press fans oh yes uh huge cross oh, with her head yes 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 with her head. so we have um oh your favorite player who's the right back oh. kelly o'hara okay oh which which, which, which my favorite, favorite player right um, your favorite defensive player <laughs> kelly o'hara oh, with the beautiful cross and Kristen Press scoring with her head, which she talked about afterwards. She does not practice headers. It's like an ongoing joke that Kristen yes. Press never scores like, with her head. Right. And so it and was one like of those things of where... Leaders, I think you're correct. It was the, like the 12th... Yeah, I think it was the 12th yeah. minute. Um, like the latest goal that the U.S. scored in yeah, the right. final. Uh, and so it was one of those things where after all those people had talked about how much of a loss Megan Rapino was and blah, 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 Kristen Press scores. Like immediately in the game, which is really, really awesome. People were only saying that about Pino because of all the political stuff and they wanted it to be a dramatic situation. Like that sure. never that never would have been a conversation with anyone if everything else hadn't happened, all the stuff off the field. Fair. Um and so then moving on in that game we had The tie. Uh yeah, Ellen White. Ellen White. Um killing it. Scored at that time put her in the lead for the golden boot. Mm-hmm. Uh which was pretty shortly after the U.S. scored. I think it was within the first 30 minutes. Yeah. Uh, so it would have been within 20 minutes of Chris and Press scoring. Um, and then we and had... Again, and that was a stressful moment in the, in the, in yeah. the, in the crowd. You know, everyone... And yeah, that, what was that like, having that Yeah. Goal. Knowing that it wasn't... It wasn't a sure thing. Like, it was great. It, you almost knew when Kristen scored, everyone was very relieved for Kristen. But it was, and it, we had our early goal, and we did what the U.S. does. And on the one hand, I think when the U.S. scores that early, they're unstoppable. That's always been the case. Right. And that, it's kind of crazy that that first 10, 15-minute goal has been an ongoing, has been a thing for the U.S. team for, right. like, decades. Uh, and when they tied it up, it was like, nope. We've got a game. we got a game. we got a game. <laughs> they came to play. Uh, it, yeah. yeah, it was just tense. Just tense. Incredibly. And then... That was the most stressful game of the whole tournament, for sure. Oh, I'm sure. Which is saying something, because we won the Spain game only on Megan Rapinoe PKs. And so to have... I I think that one you had a little more blind belief. I think you... Because we were like, it's Spain. Yeah, like, no one's ever... Although, hear me now, Spain is going to be the team to watch for the next World Cup. For sure. For sure. You heard it here, folks. You heard it here. I'm not the first one to say it. But you heard it here, too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, okay, so we had that, and then I believe before the first save, we had um, we had Alex Morgan finally score again. Mm-hmm. She sipped that tea. Which was interesting for two reasons. Number one, she scored five goals in the opening match and then had not scored since then yep. and scored on typical Alex Morgan fashion, a gazelle striding header. Yep. Where she generally touches the ball once, maybe three times at most before she scores. May I speak on a lot of the criticism of Alex Morgan being for sure for overrated sure. and all that? Because I I used I was very much in the Alex Morgan's overrated camp for the past couple of years. Okay, uh, but if you look at her long term statistics, I think you see that that's not true. And in addition, okay. I think people don't know how to watch a forward play without scoring and what a forward brings to the table when they're not scoring. All right. I have a lot as a defender. I have a lot of mixed feelings about forwards. Of, of course. Most of the time they're cocky jerks and they don't try hard enough. Because all my, they want to do is score. Biased, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Is my general biased opinion of forwards. <laughs> so it's very difficult for me to have any positive feelings about Alex Morgan. But, you know, she, she 
and people can call her a flopper all she wants. You know, I think you can say that. I don't. I, I'll take with a grain of salt anyone trying to call almost any women's player a flopper because, honest to God, there is no women's player that flops that is flops worse than your average men's player. And I'm For honestly sure. so done talking about that as a tactical thing compared to how the game is played. And it's not like the women couldn't do that if they didn't want to. For whatever reason, whatever the culture of the game has created, the women don't do that. Brazil sure. 2012 aside. <laughs> it, it is what it is. We had this conversation last night, and we said the biggest difference is everybody flops in soccer, and part of it well, is... There's a difference, here's the thing. There's a difference between flopping and selling a foul. For sure. For and sure. I think Alex Morgan is exceptional at selling fouls. She's big. She's strong. She's a target in a big way. She's a target for her own team to pass the ball to. She's a target for defenders to keep their mark on. Right. So you can say all you want that she went down easy. I don't think she ever goes down that easy. Yeah. She hear, she feels contact and she goes, you can't begrudge any forward doing that. And it pains my soul to say that as a defender. But yeah. you can't. Well, and it's one of those things of where soccer is unique in its officiating in that you have 22 players on a field and one ref who's calling fouls, really. Whereas, That's not true. Well, you have the three, the two on the sidelines. But like, it, they call fouls. Okay, but that's still three for 22 compared to the NBA that has three for 10 <laughs> and the NFL that, that has like seven for 22, well, right? Sorry. We're not going to get into that. That's a whole nother, whole nother conversation. The point being, you sometimes have to sell the call a little bit just to be seen because yeah, there's yeah. so much happening. Um, and one of, one of the biggest differences that we talked about last night before you came home in the men's and the women's game is both of them flop because that's what you do. But the men like to roll around on the ground, oh, <laughs> like writhing in pain. And most of the women like flop. They flop. They hold it a little bit. And then they're like, good. Because um, one of the big things about the Men's World Cup last year was the magic spray. Oh, and we went through an entire Women's World Cup and saw no magic spray. Um, which, that was a digression, but that's fine. So Alice Morgan finally scores. Awesome. Now she's in the lead for the Golden Boot. Not gonna it's lie, great. In, in the stadium at the moment, I was one of the people that thought she was smoking a joint and was very confused. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, for those of you who somehow haven't seen it, which means you just absolutely don't have social media for sure and you haven't watched any sort of news, fake, real, indifferent, um, Alex Morgan did a tea-sipping celebration as we were playing England. Uh, for obvious historical reasons. Her pinky in the air. It might have looked uh, a lot like she was yes. <laughs> Which some people did mistake it as this first. Um, uh, and so she got a lot of criticism for that, which that was a whole nother conversation about the difference between what men are allowed to do in forest celebrations and what women are allowed to and do. And like if it was disrespectful. I did have, and it's so hard to tell, I work with predominantly British men. Okay. And not that this is like a statistic that matters because it's literally the British men I work with but only one of the six or so were insulted by the tea-sipping thing. Like, it's a cultural thing. Um, and I, my, my only defense of that was, I think it, it, it was only funnier because tea-sipping has so many other connotations right yes. now. Like, yes, absolutely. It was funny because it was a double entendre. Right, and I think... It while funny, it was just like, ha ha, Brits, tea. Like, that's kind of weak. <laughs> right. Um, and while we don't want you, we don't want to use the men that you work with as like a representative sample for Britain, I think I can trust British men who work in soccer, who played soccer, to represent it's also like, like British if you're soccer a British players. And working soccer playing soccer, you probably have a lot of prejudices against the women's game at the same time. Right. You're going to criticize. I'll also be extra critical of. So for them to not see any offense with it, I think says a lot. For um, most of them to not see offense, yeah. And. So that was that was an interesting pseudo non soccer story. It was soccer so story. fascinating to see the things that became issues this World Cup. Oh, absolutely! It was just, oh man, yeah. it was so interesting. It was a lot of 
very non-soccer related things for storylines versus like actual play on the field which, which yeah. the play on the field this year was probably as even and spread out as it's ever been more more so it was the, probably the most competitive but absolutely the most competitive world women's world cup that we've ever had which is amazing so moving on we had that goal the u.s goes up 2-1 and then oh i don't God, remember I who took the shot but there was a yeah. shot. It was Ellen White, and she and she. Oh, yeah. was that was it? Her shot again from outside the box. Yeah. Um, and we had Alyssa Nair, who came into this World Cup with a ton of questions, and we no, I already no, no, talked no. about that. Yeah. Wait, was it, uh, the no, first no, no, save. No, not, the, not the save, because first Ellen White scored and it was called back. No, we watched the game last night. It wasn't. Well, what am I thinking? That was a different game. What am I, uh, I think you're thinking of the third place game. Oh, because then she did the T saving. Yes, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Because we thought that was going to happen too. You're right, and you're right, you're right. The, the game starts <laughs> to blur together. Watching it all, the yes, they start to blur together. To do all the things, Ellen White, keep going. Um, I don't remember who took the shot. I don't think it was Ellen White though. But it was a shot from outside the box on the U.S. and they put it. They were on the offensive left and they tried to put it in the upper right ninety. And Alyssa oh, Nair, yeah. yes, and Alyssa Nair comes out of nowhere. <gasps> makes a phenomenal save, which I personally think was better than the PK save. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, but the PK save obviously got all the attention that to was, it was a PK. And I, I didn't say it. I had I was pretty good at um, predicting things this World Cup. My friend Jackie was traveling with will tell you I had a, especially on... On, uh, on the PKs? On, well, on any set piece. I was yeah. like, here's who it's going to. And yeah. she, <laughs> I almost always had, like, it was, like, it was great. But... I, 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 some, I somehow knew. I didn't, I didn't say it. I would never have dared to say it. No, of course not. I swear not. to God, I of knew course that, not. that Alyssa Nair was going to say that. Before. Yeah. So we'll get to that, though, because that's a huge <laughs> moment. So we had this first save, and as we talked about on the podcast, Alyssa Nair is the goalie for the Chicago Red Stars, which is our home team. Goalkeeper. Sorry. Goalkeeper. Or just keeper. Or not keeper. Goalie. Soccer lingo. We're learning it. Mm. Um, she's the keeper. We're going to use the, the end lingo uh, for the Chicago Red Stars, which is our home team where we go to almost every game. I would say like 98% of the games. Yeah, um, and between high. the two of us, we probably haven't missed a game in the last two years for sure. Um, so we've been on the Alyssa Nair bandwagon. We're, we are driving it along with all of the local 134. Um, but a lot of people who have not been able to see her 24 times a year like we have <laughs> had a lot of questions because Hope Solo, regardless of how you no, feel about no her question. personally. She's not Hope Solo, what? Right. And like, <laughs> regardless of how you feel about Hope Solo personal, personally, you can't argue that she's one of the greatest goalkeepers of all time, male or female. Right. So obviously we're trying to replace that is very difficult. And so I had a lot of confidence in Alyssa going into oh, this yeah. as somebody who's watched her so often. Oh, yeah. But most of the country and the world had no idea who she was. Yeah, and I mean, the woman, she's... I don't know if anyone saw how it came across on the TV replay, but her reaction right after the PK kind of tells you everything you need to know. Yes, which we will get to, because I do absolutely want to talk about that, because mm-hmm. I noticed that, too, and that was very funny. So we had this huge save. I'm sure the local 134 was the loudest contingent of fans in France at that moment, because that's <laughs> our girl, oh, that who is basically saving the game at this point because England would have tied it 2-2 and based on how the game ended up that would have changed everything um, it, would it, it would have changed everything and so us being able to go into the half up 2-1 completely different mindset yeah well but and it also helped uh, you know make up for the the call that gave us our second goal right 
right? Because that's always there's always a mood, you know, going to these games. I just knew I could again. I could hear all my British coworkers like, "Oh, you didn't really. You got a call. You got it handed to you." Blah blah blah. blah. It's like, well, you know what? You got your equalizer handed to you, and you missed it. Right. So in the second half, the only real major scoring opportunity for either team came on a penalty kick for England, and I do not remember the play that led up to the penalty kick. Um, it was some sort of foul in the box. I don't uh, remember. It was Becky, wasn't it? Uh, oh, it might have been Becky Sauerbrunn missing the ball on a tackle mm. and just getting them. exactly what it was. It was Becky. Um, actually, this is something I... Because I've been so busy since I got back, I've been meaning to see the replay of this yeah, because absolutely. it was a pretty egregious... It was a VARPK call. There we go. It was pretty egregious. From, from the stands, it just looked like it, it was kind of a cluster in, in the box, as often happens, and you couldn't really tell where the contact was. And it went to VARPK. Oh, I remember exactly what happened, actually. And I remember I did read Becky's post-game comments. I'm going to just go... I'm going to give you my perspective of without being able to see yes, the closest yes, play. Yes, because now really I remember exactly what happened, yeah, so go yeah. ahead. It was a little cluster in the box. Feet everywhere, you know, people getting kicked, whatever. You can see what happened in the stands. After the game, I remember Becky Sauerbrunn's comments. She's probably the, the defender and one of the players I respect the, have the utmost respect for. For sure. And she said, yeah, there was definitely contact, definitely went in for a foul, but, you know, I knew if I didn't go in for it that she was going to score, which is, you know, as your defender, like, that's the only... She's so sensible like that. Like, as a defender, the only good reason to go in for a risky tackle is, like, if I don't do this... You're going to score anyway. She, yeah, you're going to score. Um... And so she's like, yeah, there's definitely contact, I w- but it was a fair play. I was going for the ball. Like, yeah. I missed it. There was contact. So be it. You know, she... she ju- yeah. I remember exactly what happened she's now so, that we talked so about it. She's honorable like that. She's oh, like, Becky's amazing. Oh, my captain. Played with a huge gash on her in the final, which uh, we'll get to eventually. This is maybe her worst tournament ever, which is so funny. Yeah. So she <laughs> went in... Replay <laughs> that you couldn't see. She went in for the tackle and missed. And the reason why they didn't call it initially is because what she did is she barely clipped the back of the England's player's heel and that England player's heel went behind their other heel and that's what made them fall. Mm. Um, so it's actually a tactic that people use in football where you just like slap the other person, like slap their foot behind their other foot so they fall. Mm. And she just grazed her enough to make her fall. So like it was one of those calls where it okay, was close. Okay, I told me it should have been a red card. Uh, no, <laughs> it, it should not have been a red card. She like barely hit her. Like yes, it should have been a foul. Um, but it, it was what? close enough that, like, it could have not been a foul. Yeah, they got it. Um, they got it. They got their kick. It got right. saved. Suck it. Huge deal. Right? <laughs> right? So we have a penalty kick and also things that you couldn't hear on the commentary. Uh, that was the first time that a PK during a game in the Women's World Cup history had been saved. Wow. So there had been Uncle makes Mayor. and there had been misses. Uncle Mayor. Because, uh, you know, sometimes people just, like, straight up miss. They go off the post. They kick it high. They kick it wide. Whatever. But that was the first in-game PK that they actually recorded a save. Wow. Um, and so that's just crazy. Like, and it was a bit for everyone about to try to hate on Uncle Mayor. Yes, it was a bad PK shot. She also had freaking ice in her veins and dove the right way. That's yeah, the she dove the right way. It could be a bad PK shot, but if she doesn't dive the right, right way, and doesn't it doesn't matter. It. And especially with all the pressure on her to, to keep that back foot on the line with all everything that's been going on with the goalkeeper VAR reviews. Like, yes, it was a bad PK. Uncle Mayor still gets the credit. She still made the save. I mean, the shot was on frame if she isn't there or goes in. Which yep. is what matters. Um, and so one of the things, and you mentioned this earlier, that showed just who she is as a player is basically the entire team rushed her while she's holding As the ball. Does, right? <laughs> um, and for those of you who don't understand how this works, if you have a PK during a game, once the ball is kicked, it's live. So if the keeper saves it, if it goes off the post, if they punch it out, like it's a live ball. 
Which means if the goalkeeper saves it and is holding it, they have a, a six-second restriction. For how long they can hold the ball, right? Hold the ball. So she gets rushed as if it's like a PK that just won the game and doesn't crack a smile, doesn't crack anything. All you see is go, go, go. <laughs> Everyone's hugging her. She's like, get away, get away. Right, everybody's go, hugging go. her. She's, I can only hold it for six seconds. Right, like <laughs> making everybody move. We're knocking our head. One, two, right. three, eight seconds. Um, and so it was something that if you were cheering like most of the country was, you probably missed that moment. Yeah. But it was because I was watching the game by myself. I it was I was cheering but like also still watching and like oh, didn't have anybody to high five. So it was just oh. really cool to like see her be looking at them going, Hey guys, this is all great, but like we can't celebrate right now. We still have to win this game. Like, so we, we go on, <laughs> we win that game, uh puts us in the final and we're in the final. I think that was probably of the elimination games, probably the most boring game that we had. Because you had yeah, France, you had England. I, I mean, it, well, I mean, there's... I, no. I, I was just saying no just by virtue of it. I, the fact that it was a final... Because it was a I final. I that footage. Again, yes. My friend Jackie I was traveling with took secret footage. I did not know that this existed until I got back and she sent it to me. She had footage, just as a close zoom in of our legs next to each other, my hand gripping her knee and my knee next to it just like... Just shaking. Yeah, just... just, just Violently tap, shaking. Like, uh, freaking out, which I didn't even know I was doing because, again, it should have been the easiest game we had. North Netherlands should be an easier opponent than England and France. But Especially without Ada Hennigar. It's a final match. They played well. They did. Anything can happen in soccer. It, they, and for the first time in the whole tournament, this is why I say you can't say it was a boring game because, yeah, you can say that no one scored in the first half. But which, but that was interesting. That's what made it stressful. Because it the, the U.S. had not. The whole tournament, the U.S. hadn't scored in the first 12 minutes. And, you know, that's all anyone was thinking. Once that 12 minute went It's by, like, who's like, going to oh score God, first? Oh, God. Oh, God. And then we have, if I remember correctly, the 62nd minute. And Pino scored. And I don't remember what the play was. I just know that Pino scored. I just know that Pino scored. We should have done better homework um, before this. No, we shouldn't have. It was, it was the whole point of this. Ugh, it was for it to be a natural raw. conversation. I'm too raw and sleep deprived. Um, I but, had a full night's sleep since, I got, yeah. <laughs> since before the World Cup. But almost more importantly was in the 69th minute, Rose Lavelle scored. Mm. And I remember that goal distinctively, her going to her oh, right. Pino's was a PK. Oh, Pino's was a PK. Yeah. Pinos was a PK. I guess I'm less excited. Although, girl's got to have ice in her veins. And especially for that PK when we already hadn't scored in the first 12 minutes. Yeah. And it's 62nd minute. And this, at this point, could be the only goal in the game because of the way the Netherlands is playing. Yeah. And, if, and especially if you miss it, what that does psychologically yeah. is you've just been handed a goal. And you couldn't get a goal that was handed to you. Now you got to keep grinding. Yep. And she put it in the lower left and froze the keeper. Keeper didn't even dive. Um, and then ice. you have... Ice. Ice. Absolutely. Ice. Um... And then we have Roosevelt score on just a beautiful goal. Yeah. I swear. C- like, cutting, turning her hips, cutting across, just cutting the ball to the left after going it's to the right. absolutely miraculous. If you haven't seen Roosevelt, give a quick Google right now. That's how, like, frail and tiny and fragile. She's so Fra- small. Fragile like a bomb, though. Fragile so like small. a bomb. Yeah. She's amazing. She's amazing. Uh, so she scores. We go up to nothing. And at that point, huge sigh of relief for me. Um... Because the way that we played defense in this tournament, the way the Netherlands have been playing in that game, the way we had been playing in that game, 2 nothing with 20 minutes left, I felt pretty comfortable. No kidding. Well, you know, Roosevelt's goal sealed it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, so it was really awesome when we won, a little bit anticlimactic. I disagree. Uh, I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so talk about the difference because I know watching at home, we were like counting down the time, just like kind of waiting, but without having the energy of like being in a stadium or yeah, being no at a was, watch party. Didn't feel like shorted or anything with energy until maybe the last 10, 15, or 10, 10, 5 to 10 minutes. Okay. Last 5 to 10 minutes. But especially because of how long it took for anyone to score, knowing that it's a final, the, the Dutch fans, the Dutch fans were awesome. Awesome. So awesome. Um, you know, it's any, anything can happen in soccer. You just can't discount it. And two to zero is the hardest lead to protect. Right. And twenty minutes is plenty of time to make something to happen. Oh, so absolutely. I don't think I wasn't cal- I wasn't calm and only reg- relatively calm until <laughs> there was ten minutes left. To until go. it was over. And I even got stressed out because like the players on the bench of the U.S. bench about five minutes before the final whistle started walking into the stands to like hug their parents and stuff, and I was like, "Y'all, chill." There's like, five minutes. Like, no, <laughs> don't jinx it. Get them get back out here. Uh, but they knew. Like, yeah, they knew. well, that's the same story. That's a good. That's the the story that uh, Sue Bird told in, in that art, great article she wrote in the Players Tribune. I didn't see that one. What was oh, it? Oh, so good. Well, the one where it was like the title was something like "The President Hates My Girlfriend." Yes, I saw that. I saw that. <laughs> right, right, right. So in that article, she tells she shares a story uh, that I, I presume Megan had told her from the, from the 2015 World Cup when they went. Like we said, they went into that halftime four to two. And they're all business. They're all professionals. I'd love to talk more later in this episode if we have time about the mental game of the U.S. being the deciding factor and, mm-hmm. and what behind that makes that possible. But so the U.S. goes into the locker room four to two in the twenty fifteen World Cup final. Be all serious, you know. We got to do this. We got to fix that. We can do this better. We can do that better. We got to look out for this. And Megan Rapinoe's just sitting there, like jittering, like you guys. You guys. We're about to win. We're going to win the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> like, she just knows. Yeah, like, we can't not say it. Like, I don't, like, I know we got to be professional and do our thing. And but, like, like, guys, we're about to win the World guys, Cup. Like, guys, we are better guys, than this guys, team. Guys, guys, we, like, when you have a hat trick in the first 16 minutes. Right, on. like, you just know. I don't care if it's 4-2 to and that's not, like, a guaranteed win. Like, with the vibe of that game, you knew. Right. Um, so yeah, same same kind of thing, except not because it was 2-0 to zero <laughs> in the 70th minute. And it was an earned 2-0 on Netherlands. It wasn't like the U.S. played bad. We played well. Netherlands just also probably played one of their best games at the tournament. Yeah. To have us not score in the first half and then have it only be two goals, one of which was on a PK. It was also great to see the difference between, I'll say, you know, when you talk about, oh, it was a less exciting game, it was a more boring game. Did you watch the Sweden-Netherlands game? Uh, the that was a boring game. The Sweden-Netherlands 1-0 semifinal. semifinal. Yeah. That in went overtime. to extra time. Yep. Yeah, it was awful. Yeah. They both just played defense. Yeah. <laughs> that was, yeah, that, it was terrible. It was absolutely so terrible. So it was really interesting. So I got to see then Sweden versus England and... Where Sweden played hard. West. So I thought, yeah. So it was really interesting seeing that that first matchup and then going to the next one. So we saw, all, I got to see all those in person and it mm. was like, what? Like, is, where was what? this team? What? Why? Right. Sweden straight up looked like they just didn't want to play the U.S. game. Like, we're just tired of this story. Like, we're right. tired of this story. So we'll just, we'll just, we'll just be third. Like, That's fine. We can accept that you're better than us. Like, no one really <laughs> wants to fight about that, but it turns into such a drama thing. Like, we'll just go get third place and embarrass England, which they did. Absolutely. So we had the U.S. win, and very quick plug, if you have not done it, just Google Ashlyn Harris. <laughs> And just watch. And, this, and then just watch all of it. Um, if you want to see a true, real celebration and what you should do after you win something as important as the World Cup, her Instagram story and all the compilations thereof. Um, that's what you need to see. 
I'm sure you could look at other people's Instagram compilations, but hers is probably the most comprehensive of no, it was pretty much, all it was of the all events. Her. It was all her. I don't, know, um, I, don't know, I don't know enough about Instagram to find out where you find someone's story once it's already happened. No, somebody has to publish it. I think it. having the U.S. being repeating champions mm-hmm. and having been such a, not, not that they were guaranteed this championship by any stretch of the imagination, but it gave, like I mentioned earlier, it, it made room for that frivolity that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. You know, they were defending the 16-year title. No one had won since the 99ers in 2015, so they finally got that. Um, what you call it off their back? I don't Monkey. That, and <laughs> <laughs> and so this year they got to got to celebrate, and they had all the support and money behind them that largely came after the 2015 World Cup, and you got to see them let loose like grown ups instead of all the whole oh we're here for all the you know, all the little girls that couldn't do what we do all the little girls all the little girls all the little girls right that's the narrative right. Uh, this one ain't for the little girls. I mean, it is. It always it was for them. But it's, yeah. 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 Which was awesome. So, again, if you haven't seen that. Into bad butt women. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, so, if you haven't seen that, absolutely go look at it. And, and if it makes you feel uncomfortable, ask yourself real deep down dark why. Facts. And we'll leave that at that, because that's, <laughs> that's all that needs to be said on that point. Um, so that was the World Cup. It was amazing. So that was the World Cup. <laughs> um, I mean, that was the elimination round, since like a bit of what it was like to be there. Um, but while that. we have an audience, now is the time. So people, much like last year, have caught soccer fever. Um, and in the U.S., we have something unique to us as far in terms of soccer, where we have... And I read, like, three articles today where multiple women, international and otherwise, have called it the most competitive Mm -hmm. league overall, Mm -hmm. Um, which, for those of you who don't know, I was talking to somebody who I believe was Dutch who worked with you. Luke. Luke, right. And I asked him where the MLS ranks in terms of, like, competitiveness. And so his answer was probably somewhere between, like, five and eight of, like, the the mini leagues across the world. And so of the mini soccer leagues across the world for women, the NWSL, as far as, like, overall competitiveness is one. Well, and it's a really interesting conversation because the the growth and development of women's soccer has been so exponential because the, mm-hmm. there's been so little investment that a little bit goes such a long way. Right. And I really want to talk about uh, Italy in that context. Okay. I think, so, So again, this is probably a storyline that most people definitely don't know because even in Italy, people don't you know, have a very um, macho Italy culture, all that stuff. Sure. And soccer is such a big deal for the men in that country and having paid attention to the women. So until this year, the Italian women's national team hadn't made a World Cup, qualified for a World Cup in 20 years. Okay. This is the first World Cup they qualified for. Since 99. And they made it to the quarterfinals. And played well in that quarterfinal match. And played well in that, against the Netherlands. Against the Netherlands, who ended up in the final. Right. So (laughs) the big difference the big change that made that happen only happened in the past two years, and it was simply just a significant increase in investment in the club game. So Serie A, the, the Italian professional league, mostly Juventus and Fiorentina, right. invested in their women's team. Not, I think it was it's something like seven or nine players on the, the starters on the Italian national team played mm-hmm. for Juventus. Like, they're stupid dominant, which is a whole other issue to talk about. But, but it's a great example of just... If you put the money there, all it takes is some freaking money. The talent is there. The passion is there. The skill is there. Invest. You want to return? Invest. And that that's all it took. It, it wasn't even the past 20 years it took to build up. It was literally the past two, two years, years investing in that club system yeah. to watch the Italians rise to, <laughs> to having a shot at the, you know, getting to the final 
they had a shot at a, a medal. Well, they ended up finishing, what, like fifth? Yeah. So, that being so, so my, my point there is, is that in the women's game, the leagues are changing so quickly. Because okay. I think, yes, the NWSL could be considered the number one right now, but I think it's very quickly changing with the money, especially after this World Cup, the money being poured into the FA in England. and Because the, the, the um, what is it, the Champions League or who? I mean, the Premier League? Yes, the Premier They want to buy out the, the women's league now in England after this. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah that, dro- that news dropped like the day after the final. It was crazy. Which would be huge. Yeah. Um, um, the Bundesliga is great. The, the, especially the, the, the French league with Olympique Lyonnais, which is the, we'll talk about this later, the best sports franchise in sports history is Olympique Lyonnais. There has been no more dominant sports franchise yeah. than Olympique Lyonnais' women's team. Which is interesting, and for those of you who don't know, the European soccer system is very different than what we're used to for traditional American sports, where you have players come out and they get drafted because they're worried about parity. In European soccer, they're like, if you want to be dominant, just throw money at people. We don't care. You can stack your team. So Olympic Lyonnais, so right, so like every player on Olympic Lyonnais played in the World Cup. Yeah, and like. It was like nine Olympic of the Lyonnais eleven French like, starters. Like the all-star team of the world. Right. Uh, Whereas in America, we can't really have that because that's not how our system works. Because they believe in parity. So. But it's a great message. It's like yeah. it, it, to investors, which is something the American League lacks. Is like you know you it's, you have a salary cap and all this other stuff. So you. Which can't. is incredibly low, by the way. <sighs> Would you like to know what it is? Um, no, I <laughs> prefer not. But I looked it up today, and I'm pretty sure the top salary is like forty-one grand or something yeah. like that. Um. But we do have the American League, the National Women's Soccer League, the NWSL, where all 23 of the players who were on the U.S. roster and the other, like, seven or eight who were just barely cut are all playing in that league, um, which is unique. I'm pretty sure we're the only country that has all of our players playing in the same league. I think so. Um, But what's really awesome about doing this league the way that Americans do sports leagues is the national team players are spread out. So if there's a team anywhere near you, you're going to have at least one. Most teams, two Houston. to four. New Jersey is the only one with one. It's Houston little... has zero. What? Houston has zero. Oh, do they now? Yeah. Oh, but they have Rachel Daly. <laughs> so. Cleveland doesn't even use Rachel Daly. <laughs> um, Which I disagree with, for the record. Yeah, that's, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> uh, but you're going to have national team players that you have access to. And the reason I say access to is because I literally mean access. They come sign autographs after every game and talk to people yeah. like they're not actually famous. It's really interesting. Like, low-key, I, I keep trying to warn people, get on the women's soccer bandwagon early because it's actually so much fun when there's fewer fans. Yeah, because they're not that famous yet. Yeah, it's super fun. And you so get, they like get are cheap normal. tickets, you can sneak alcohol in. I didn't say that. <laughs> um, I mean, concession prices, even though the league is not that big, it's still regular concession prices, which you know, I don't understand, but stadium, that's, stadium that's, that's, that's fine. It's, it's the um, but, like, find out where your local team is. There are nine teams in the league. They play 24 times a year. If you don't have a team nearish you, which is possible because the U.S. is really large and there's only nine teams, it's worth, like, a weekend trip to Houston or Chicago or We're somewhere. We're with a federation that actually gives their women's national team additional games throughout the year. Like we said, we drove to Nashville. Yeah. So, like, they're going to pop gonna up. be near you. It's going to happen. You and, like, Worst take... case scenario, you waste two hours of your life on the game. The tickets are not that expensive. Yeah. And you go travel to a city. That's the best thing about traveling for sports. It's like, yeah, you're going to go for a game. It's going to take a couple hours out of your life, and then it's a normal trip from there. 
Right, and most of the teams are in major cities, so people are regularly coming to Chicago for a weekend anyway in the summer. People are going to Houston for a weekend. They're in cities where you're going to go. It's during the summer. Take the kids. They're out of school. Most of the games are on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, so it's a weekend thing, and they're easily accessible cities. And if you live in one of the major cities where there is a team, you have no excuse. (laughs) Uh, I will tell you now, if you have a girlfriend or a boyfriend who loves sports, it is the cheapest date you'll ever take them on, (laughs) because I know Red Stars... Tickets right now, I think the most that well, you, yeah. the cheapest you can get them for is seven dollars, yeah. and so few people are going that you can sit wherever you want. So you no pay security. seven bucks, <laughs> you pay fourteen bucks to get both of you in, and then you hang around for a little bit, and you're going to get an autograph. And coming off the World Cup, it's probably going to be a national team player. If you were one of those people who Sam bought Sam freaking Kerr, Sam Kerr, one of the best in the world, plays for the Chicago team from Australia. Um, we also have Julie Ertz. We have Uncle Nair. Alyssa Nair. Like the goalie unsung hero, Megan Rapinoe will be here at some point this year, or next year, depending on the schedule. Roosevelt will be here. Malpu, like literally all of the women on the team that we love, will be in whatever city you're in, once if not twice. All the Alex Morgan people. Alex Morgan plays in Orlando. She will be there. And then you have the international stars that we didn't even get to, where you have Sam Kerr and you have Marta and you have Dabinia and you have Rachel Daly and you have all these people from other teams. Who are also playing in our league? So much the NWSL. I think you watch got more it. passionate about the NWSL flag than I did in the end. Watch <laughs> you it. You have to say it. You got this. And mostly, like, if you watch the Women's World Cup at all, then you, you like soccer. More? Are you not? You watch soccer a little bit. Get it. And it's gonna cost you like fifteen bucks. Like so it's cheap. so cheap. And it helps so much. It's so cheap, and it's so much fun. It's and two the hours. Is so good. It's great. It's a lot of fun. People are fun. The fan groups are great. Um, if you were actually paying very close attention. Uh, actually, no, this is a separate game, but I was watching the Houston Red Stars game on the on TV, and they actually, like, gave a shout-out to the official supporters group for the Red Stars who watch a game, the We Away games, in a bar. Like, it's a very small community. Everybody's close. Everybody's fun. Most games, there's tailgating. There's generally food, beer. It's a great time. And it's something that you can't find in almost any other sports league or people that are genuinely committed to being inclusive. Absolutely. We're, We're like... Friends. Anybody who wants to come, race, color, creed, sexual orientation, language, whatever, nobody really like especially cares. Especially considering because sports have been male-dominated and what and what that all entails, like the often very toxic culture among supporters and teams and whatever else. I got to hear the puta chant again last night. Sorry, you. That's, oh, that's, you're good. I finally didn't swear. That's <laughs> I was doing so well. And I no, 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 it works. Not so. even a word I use. Uh, finally got to hear that at, at, at the Chivas Fiorentina game last night. Yeah. Super great. Always love it. But, you know, so if you're, you know. I mean, at our tailgates, we regularly get people that are fans of the other team. That are like, I'm We're from this. Nice. <laughs> like, the biggest division we have isn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, they show up. All racism, sexism, yes. it's just the fan stuff. We're even nice to our opposing Yes. Team. like they, sh- they show up, they're like, oh, my God, I'm from <laughs> Washington. This is the only team that ever comes to Chicago. I come to this game, and, like, they hang out with us at the tailgate and, like, drink and talk Early and just talk about soccer. It's great. Heart. It's great. Um, so before we finish, we have one more thing. Okay, so what we're going to do every time we have a guest on the podcast is they're going to have to go through a series of questions. And the plan is to use the same series of questions for everybody just to kind of see how they answer it. Uh, So the first one I have is, 
who has influenced you the most in your life? My grandmother. Your grandmother, why? She was there from the beginning, and she's terrifying. Fair enough. Short and to the point. In, like, the best way. <laughs> in the best way possible, right? Of course. Um, when you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? A cookie maker. A cookie maker? Yeah. Interesting. And how far away are you from being a cookie maker I right now? I am a cookie maker for about one month out of the year. And <laughs> I cookie make the F out of them cookies. Good job. Um, here's a fun one, and I'm assuming that this is going to have to do with what we talked about all day. If you could switch lives with someone for a day, and you had to... Uh, who would you switch with? Um, Kelly O'Hara getting beers delivered to her everywhere she goes. So Kelly O'Hara, like, post-World Cup? Yeah. For sure. I I currently might have to go Pino post-World Cup right now. Like, um, I probably but also want Ashlyn. Attention? No. Like, that's too much responsibility. Like, do you <laughs> to, like, to, record everything? Look, Kelly's the one that's, like, making out with her girlfriend. No one's talking about it except for the people who are happy about it. Right. You know, she's just like, I'm going to make out with her in the stands. No one's going to, oh, celebrating with a fan. That was a caption that <laughs> Of course. And then it was like, hey, P.S., can someone bring me beer? And now for the past week, everywhere she goes, people have beer for her. Amazing. So, yeah. so Kelly O'Hara. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, this one's going to be harder. So you might have to think a little bit. You know that you're going to die tomorrow morning. What's your final meal tonight? Um, something Italian, I'm assuming. It is something Italian, but I don't want to cook. Oh, you're not cooking. Well, that what, you don't you don't have to decide that. I get to decide what I eat. If I want to well, eat my own cooking, sure, I can. but like you don't have to cook. I don't, yes, no, I don't want to. Assume uh, everything is fair game. I probably one of my favorite Italian restaurants in Chicago is Spaccanopoli. I'd probably go and just like buy out everything they had. They've got really good pizza. Like, for sure. Simple. Keep it simple. And That's a good easy. Good. That's a good good easy answer for yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, if I knew that, it's like already what what time o'clock? I don't have a lot of time to come up with this last meal. So fair enough. That's fair enough. To Two more questions. Um, who are your three dream dinner guests, dead or alive? Mm. Um, well, my, my dad's dad, my grandfather, is okay. always on that list because I never got to meet him. For sure. So that's, an e- that's the easy one. Um, Alice Walker. Okay. You're thinking mm-hmm. very hard about this. Well, would you? That's not like an easy question. Yeah, but it's like you don't have to hold your feet to the fire. Oh, well, screw it. I'll Nobody's going to judge I'll you. Pinot then on for the last. One. You're going to Pinot for the last one. Yeah. Are we going purple hair drunk Pinot? <laughs> Are we going? Yeah, Pinot right now today. Pinot right now, yeah, the way she Pino in her right all now. her this today is, glory. Whatever, and like let's see, that purple hair has gone through a couple iterations. I don't know where. It's <laughs> <laughs> all right, and then the last one is, and this is your opinion, not other people's opinion. What three words best describe you? Me? Yes, you. Passionate, compassionate, and... <laughs> I'll tell you about my immediate last thought. Was What's your immediate last thought? Straight up sleepy. <laughs> like Passionate, up compassionate, and sleepy. <laughs> I am good with it. As always, thanks for listening, guys. Um, remember, you can subscribe, rate, review, comment, all of those things. Uh, and if you have feedback, feel free to leave comments, DM me, Twitter, Instagram, everything. Uh, for Ante, bye to the people. Bye, people. And thanks so much for listening. Later days. Bye.